Welcome to the 12th Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And with us today is Eugene Peterson, an author of 30-some books, a pastor, a professor of spiritual theology, uh, probably best known for his translation of the Bible into plain English called the Message Bible. He's re- he rarely makes public appearances, and so this is, a, uh, this is a, a, a real treat for us. Reverend Peterson, welcome, and thank you for being part of our symposium this year. I, I want to talk about storytelling with you. You have said that stories invite us into a world other than ourselves. and I, I'd like to hear you explain what that means. Maybe a, maybe a world larger than ourselves. We're a storytelling people. And um, our lives are stories. They have plot. They have intent. They have other people. We're, not, we're never the only person in the story. And the Bible is our greatest story. And um, if we... If we just live within ourselves or our lives are just determined by our own needs, our wants, our desires, it gets a very small world. And it's really not a storied world. It's not a world that has um, much action in it except our own desires. So storytellers have always been the people in our society, who um, in the cultures, that have brought us into a world that's um, larger than us, it usually includes gods or God, and it includes generations. There, there's a past, there's a future. Um, we've always told stories. And um, the Christian story is, um, is not unlike those stories in the way, it's, the way story works, but it is the story for Christians um, that puts God at the center of the story, not as in some Greek, uh, Akkadian, Assyrian stories, uh, the gods were kind of in the background. Uh, They were doing things, um, but um, they never got involved with the people. And here we have a story that God, where God enters our lives, and, um, well, that's it. We we tell stories. Well, and so much of your writing involves and quotes from and has been informed by fiction Writers, you you quote from Wendell Berry. He seems to be one of your favorites. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, I've read references to in your writings. Walker Percy, Wall Stegner, Dostoevsky, and Tyler. Some detective novels have gotten themselves worked into your writings, and and so I'd like you to to explore that and and tell me why, and then really tell me what was the impact of James Joyce's Ulysses on on you. I, you say it's profound. I'd love to hear it explained. <laughs> well, let me start with the James Joyce. Um, I, I was a new pastor. I was trying to understand my congregation. Um, <laughs> they didn't seem to me very interesting, uh, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I'd always thought when I became a pastor, I'd have all the stars in town come. Interesting people, celebrities. They stayed away in droves. And I... You had tens of worshipers. <laughs> That's right. 
And I was, as I was muddling through all of this and kind of feeling sorry for myself, wishing I had the kind of a congregation that some of my friends always bragged that they had, I, I later found out they lied a lot. <laughs> I was reading Ulysses, um, James Joyce's greatest work. And it's about one man, uh, Leopold Bloom, and he doesn't do anything really interesting. It's just an ordinary day in this Dubliner's life. And I began to see through Joyce's storytelling how interesting this ordinary life is. And along about, I can still remember the page, I think I dog-eared the page, it was 338. I realized this is my congregation. Leopold Bloom sits in my pew every Sunday. And I, it just, it was, it was a conversion. Um, it was a, an imagination conversion. Um, so, um, to expand from that, um, storytellers tell us about ways of living that we have not yet appropriated ourselves or thought of ourselves. They expand the horizons of our lives or they open up depths in our lives that we didn't know we had. Um, I find fiction writers um, um, some of the best spiritual writers, uh, whether they're Christians or not, religious or not, they're probing the, the, the ordinary world of our lives. And uh, they're great. I think pastors should um, read fiction a lot more than they do. In fact, you've said that seminary, the first two years of seminary, should just be literature training. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Learn how to read a story. I probably shouldn't say this, but my wife is not here. It's just us. Okay. <laughs> my wife and I spend, we've done this for years, um, spend an hour before supper uh, each evening reading aloud to each other. She usually does the reading. I listen. Um, we're reading right now a book I'd read 30 years ago, Tale of Two Cities, Dickens' book on the French Revolution. And Dickens is a really fine writer. He's one, of, he's one of the canonical fiction writers for me. And, uh, but Janet has never read this before. And it's, it's old-fashioned. It's Victorian. So he's, he doesn't... You kind of enter into that, that leisurely, uh, slow storytelling world of the Victorians. And every once in a while, Jan says, Now, why did he say that? What's, what's going to happen now? I don't understand what's going on. And I said, Jan, you've got to let the storyteller tell you. Wait for the storyteller. Don't get in a hurry. Um, it's, great, it's great counsel for pastors. Impatience is the besetting sin of pastors. We're in a hurry. We want to see things happen. And um, sometimes it takes 300 pages before something happens. <laughs> <laughs> or the thing you want to have happen. I'd, I'd, I'd like you also to explain this, this line because it goes right along with what you're saying. You have said that every time a story is well told, the gospel has been served. What does that mean? It means that um, you realize that I am a story 
And the, uh, the substructure of the gospel is that we're involved in, in a life that means something, that ordinary people, you know, there are no heroes in the Bible. You realize that? There really aren't. I mean, the, the ones that we call heroes are usually villains or big sinners, and we don't want to be them anyway. So, But we find ourselves plotted. We find ourselves as a character, as meaning. No no sentence in, in a good a story well told, no sentence, no person is optional. Good storytellers make every sentence count. There are no throwaway lines. And um, if I get a feel for that, I'm not sure this is this very often is very conscious, but I get the feeling that there, there are no throwaway lines in my life. Hmm. Everything I do is part of what's going on. And the story, and in some way, it's going to mean something. I might not find it out for ten years, but I'm going to find it out. Well, and this would then support why you like Wendell Berry so much, right? Because of that rhythm of right. every, everything matters. Everything matters. What else about Wendell Berry? I know you quote him a lot. Well, Wendell Berry, maybe I don't know. There's, he's he's a complex writer. He, he writes so well, but. Um, Maybe the thing as a pastor that I like so much about him is he makes community... Community is no longer a word, it's a story. But we're, we're not stories by ourselves. And one of the things in the church that is the hardest for pastors, well, for anybody to deal with, is the fragmentation, the individualism um, that uh, separates us all. We think we go to church, but then we go off and we do it ourselves. We, we're trying to find something that we can use for ourselves and we've lost the pronoun we we really have and uh, Wendell Berry there's Wendell Berry stores we and us to our language and uh, the little fictional community he writes about um, in his novels is um, you know he keeps writing about these he's been writing about these same people for 40 years 50 years, I don't know. Yeah, 50 years, I think. And uh, he keeps coming up with a new slant on these people. We know that been, those of us who have been reading him, we've been reading these stories forever. And then all of a sudden, here's another story uh, of somebody that um, we thought we knew all about. And we're finding the new things. I don't know how many books he's going to write. And, and they're always attached to the land, the land on, on, on which they live. And the families, the neighbors... Now, nobody's, there are no, no lone rangers in his books. How big of an ego kick was it to get quoted by Bono? <laughs> you know, when, I mean, I, I hope Bono never hears this, but... He's, he, he's a, a viewer. He's one of our fans. <laughs> Just be careful. When I, was, when I was quoted by Bono, I was told this by a student of mine at, uh, in Vancouver. He, he brought me this magazine. I don't know what it was. Look, Dr. Peterson, Bono quotes you. And I said, tell me, who's Bono? <laughs> and this poor student, he was an Asian student, and he, just, his, he was just crestfallen. I mean... I, I went down in his estimation just so fast. 
after I found out who Bono was, and, uh, and then people started bringing me his music, and I listened to his music, and I thought, I like this guy. And I, I was starting to, after a while, I started, was start being quite pleased that he knew me. <laughs> Yes, but the rest of the story is when he invited you to come and hang with them for a while, you turned him down. Well, his chaplain did. He has a chaplain who travels with him. They were in Chicago, and um, he invited me to come and spend a couple days with them uh, just to hang out. But I was... was, I was pushing a deadline on the message. Uh, I was finishing up the Old Testament at the time, and I really couldn't do it. I, I, uh... You may be the only person alive <laughs> who would turn down the opportunity just to make a deadline. I mean, come on. It's, it's Bono, for crying out loud. Dean, it was Isaiah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about your translating the Bible uh, into modern language. Somebody once said that all translation is betrayal. How do you think about what you did with translating the Bible into modern English with a, uh, with a statement like that? I think it's um, pretty snobbish. <laughs> That's the old, it's an old phrase, you know. Translator, traitor. Sounds better in Latin. But what would we, where would we be without translators? Now the fact is, is that every language is different. So you cannot literally translate from one language to another. When you do, you just end up with misinformation, misunderstanding. So the, the worst translations are those translations that are try to be literal. Wasn't it Luther who said literalists were lemmings? That's right. <laughs> of course, you're not Lutheran. <clears throat> well, keep, keep going, though, because that, that, that whole literal... Uh, thing that's that's a big deal in some cultures. Well, it is, uh, and it's unfortunate. But I think it's probably, you know, people want to be true to the Bible. They want to keep this. This is a, this is a sacred text. They don't want anybody tampering with it. Uh, so they think that if they can just get it, you know, literal, then no, nothing else can creep in. But the you language. Each language has its own colloquialisms, vernacular, rhythms, syntax. Uh, I like what. Um, Kwame Bediako, an African theologian, scholar, says, and he's talking about, the, about Africa, where they have a lot of different languages. He said, every time the Bible is translated, it gets fresh meaning. Because every language has its own unique quality. And so every time it's translated, another language gets to put in its two cents worth in the ramifications of this text. The uh, um, like a stone, a gemstone, that you turn it a little bit and, and new light comes off of it. The stone doesn't change, but the, the light, the, the hue, the uh, vibrations, they change a little bit. 
So every time the Bible is translated expands, not, it is not diluted, it's, it's larger. And I think that's true. What, what's too far, though? Uh, I've seen uh, the leadership Bible, the skateboarders Bible, the living Bible. Mine died. I, I, didn't, know what, I didn't know what to feed it. But, but what, what, do you, what do you do with, with trying to put it so much into a colloquial um, culture? Is, is there a distortion problem there? There can be. There's always a temptation to try to be relevant or cute, uh, eye-catching. Uh, I had an editor. Uh, I, had, I had editors on every, a different editor for every book of the Bible. Their job was to make sure I was staying true to the text and, um, and not distorting it. What I was trying to do, Dean, was um, from the very outset, I was try- thinking if Isaiah was saying this in America, how would he say it? I didn't want to do much interpretation. I didn't want to do explanation. That would be going the route of paraphrase. Uh, I, but I wanted to say it in such a way. I, see, I thought, you know, I, nobody in Isaiah's time had to go to a dictionary or a, a handbook uh, to find out what he was talking about. I wanted to translate in such a way that the images he used were images that would be recognizable to somebody in my congregation or the man on the street. And it's not easy. Uh, it's, it's very hard. And there are, you're always kind of walking on the edge of a precipice. Um, too much, too little. Well, I had my friends. I had my editors, my scholars who checked what I was doing. And um, I wanted to use the word lucky in the uh, Beatitudes. Um, blessed sound a little too Religious. And it's in Hebrew uh, and Greek, uh, the word they used, it was not a religious word. It was happy. Many translations now say happy. I like lucky. You know why I like lucky? Why? Because there was a woman in my congregation who had never come to church. She was 40 years old. She was kind of an ex-hippie. Still, she wasn't ex, really. She, yeah, I was going to say, can you be an ex-hippie? No, she, she wasn't. She, yeah. she wove all her own fabrics and wore clunky shoes and... Uh, she was beautiful in a kind of a folksy way. And she came, her husband was an alcoholic, her son was a drug addict, and she came to church because she had friends she'd met in um, uh, Al-Anon. And, but she always slipped out. She didn't want to, she never came and visited and shook my hand at the door. I never knew who she was. Nobody told me who she was. And, um, and then one week, she, I was starting a series of sermons on David. And she came through the door and she shook my hand and she said, Pastor, thank you. I'd never heard that story before. And the next week and the next week, every week, I never heard that story before. I feel so lucky. And then she kept using the word lucky. I feel so lucky. Well, suddenly the word lucky had a biblical sound to it. <laughs> just, it just, you know, surprise. Never knew this could happen. So I tried to put it in the Bible. And um, my editor said, Eugene, you can't do that. There's a whole subculture out there that thinks Lucky is a nickname for Lucifer. And they'll just trash the whole thing just because of Lucky. So I had to give up. What would you use? I kept blessed. I said, you are blessed when. Oh, okay. 
I guess I should have known that had I read your book. <laughs> well, on the, on the whole thing about translation, though, isn't reading itself a type of translation? It is. Reading is one of the hardest things we do. Um, most difficult things we do to do it accurately. I just wrote a book about reading, and uh, I was amazed at how difficult it is. <laughs> this is the book, Eat This Book, right? That's correct. Marvelous. Actually, I have read that one. <laughs> You're lucky. <laughs> you want to do this symposium for me next year? I, I want to ask you about something and, and see if you meant this as hyperbole. You wrote one time that most of what we've learned about God is wrong. Do you still feel that way? And what does it mean? It means that um, most of what we learn about life is wrong. And God most of all. As we grow up, we, you know, we think the earth is flat and we're wrong about that. We gradually get... We think, our, we think our parents are just jerks and we've, actually we start to find that they're pretty much okay. We, we're ill-formed when we're born and we gradually, by increments, we start to get the hang of things. We go to school. We have experiences. And, um, and God is one of the realities in which we deal with that gets encrusted with a lot of stuff. Um, Neighborhood, what neighborhood kids are saying, what our, we hear on the media. And um, so we have to work our way through a lot of misunderstanding. But see, the basic thing is, is more, it's just we're sinners. We don't have a sanctified imagination to receive things pure. And so we're constantly having to be corrected, being rebuked, being um, come to some new understanding, uh, learning. And this is why Jesus Christ is so, so central to what we're doing. Because we have now a revelation in the way we can understand in our terms, not fancy, not elitist, just everyday-ish. Um, but yeah, we... And one of the reasons one of the reasons that complicates this is we really don't want God. We want to be our own gods. And so when we get a picture of God that doesn't take account of how I want him to be, we reject it or we modify it, try to turn it into something that is useful to us. So this pastors are the you know we're at the forefront of all this um, because. One of our jobs is to keep the perceptions clean of God. And uh, people are coming to us all the time. Why doesn't God do this? Why did God let this happen? Why does God... You know, I hate God. Well, tell me about the God you hate. I probably hate him too. Um, so it's... That's why we gather these people every week in church to incrementally build a, a true picture, a whole picture of God. Tell me why you'd rather have your books in a bookstore section that's not in the inspiration section, but you'd rather have your books over in the cookbooks section. <laughs> Tell me why you said that. <laughs> did I say that? Yeah, you did. 
Trust me, I'm a journalist. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> I guess I feel that uh, there's so much religious or inspirational so-called writing that is... Um, so thin, thin soup, soupy. Um, I'd rather be associated with, um, with serious writers who have lived what they've written, who've spent their lives trying to get this straight. Um, you know, writing is hard work. And uh, religious writing is often really badly written. And um, so I, well, you don't get to choose those things. I don't know, the, the cookbook thing is, you know, people buy cook, cookbooks because they want to cook. Um, people don't always buy religious books because they want to be good or serve God. It becomes a substitute. Um, in fact, somebody, some people buy cookbooks that way. I have a friend who buys cookbooks all the time, and she never cooks a meal. <laughs> Buying the cookbook, looking at the pictures, is, that satisfies. And... Um, do you, have any, uh, do you have any advice for the writers in our audience or our viewers who might be watching this? People who think, I, I think I'd like to write. I'd like to be a storyteller. What do you want to tell them? Do it. We need all we can get. Um, there's, there are never enough storytellers. Uh, there are a lot of um, people who want to write stories, but they don't want to go through the discipline, the uh, agony, the the immersion in life that requires to tell the truth with all of this. Now, I think writing is uh, one of the sacred callings. I wish, in fact, uh, uh, that the church would ordain writers the way they ordain pastors and professors. Uh, Give some dignity to um, this work of the imagination that... uh, William Blake always capitalized the word imagination... Uh, for him, it was the Holy Spirit. And uh, I don't know if he ever explained that or not, but the imagination is, the, is a very, in our culture right now, the imagination is maybe the least developed faculty in adults. We let other people do our imagining for us. Um, and, uh, and we usually, and as a culture, we take the lowest denomination, the denominator of imagination. But the imagination is almost, not quite, the same thing as faith. It's that which connects what we see and what we don't see. And, and pulls us through what we see into what we don't see. Now when that imagination then become, involves trust and participation in the unseen, it's faith. But imagination is the training ground for that. So that's why I think novelists, poets, um, we ought to ordain them. I mean, they're very important to the life of the faith, the life of the church. uh, Eugene Peterson, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. 